Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am honored to welcome historian, educator, and writer Carol Anderson to The Stacks. Dr. Anderson is the Charles Howard Chandler Professor and Chair of African American Studies at Emory University, and she was named the Guggenheim Fellow for Constitutional Studies. She's the esteemed author of White Rage, One Person No Vote, Bourgeoisie Radicals, and Eyes Off the Prize. Carol is here to discuss her work and her latest book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, which was released in 2021 and is now out in paperback. The second is a powerful account of the way anti-Blackness has been integral in the creation, survival, and evolution of the Second Amendment. Our March book club pick is the essay collection Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. Shanita Hubbard will be back on March 29th for our discussion of the book. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the show can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love the stacks and want more of it, like our incredible community on Discord, our bonus episodes, and our monthly virtual meetups to discuss our book club picks, you must join the Stacks Pack on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get all of that and more, and you get to know that you're a part of making this Black, woman-run indie podcast a reality every single week. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join now. I want to give a quick thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Sophie, Allison Sampson, Jessica, Kristen Dugans, Susan Chu, Triana E., Kelly Anderson, and Bill Linsenberg. Thank you all so much. And of course, thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. All right. Now it is time for my conversation with Dr. Carol Anderson. All right, everyone. I am... So honored today to be joined by Carol Anderson, whose newest book, The Second, which I read when it came out in hardcover, is now out in paperback. The book is called The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Carol, welcome to The Stacks. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I told you this as soon as we got on, but I'm such a big fan of yours, and I'm so honored that you're here and excited to talk to you about this book and about your work a little bit more broadly. For folks who aren't familiar, can you tell us in about 30 seconds or so what the second is about? The second is about the role of anti-Blackness in the Second Amendment, Um, the way that it was shaped by the fear of Black people during slavery and how that fear has carried and eddied through into the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, so your other books, White Rage, One Person, No Vote, and now this book, The Second, what I love about what you do is you're obviously a very smart person because you can take these huge ideas and these huge topics and bring them down to like 200 pages that any normal like me can read. And so I was like, when I picked up the second, I was like, there's no way I'm going to understand this book. And I read it in like a day and a half. I just, I devoured it. I thought it was so smart and so interesting. And there were so many ideas that, you know, maybe I had thought about but I hadn't quite like really wrapped my brain around them that you lay out so beautifully in this book. And so my question here is like, where did you get the idea to write about the Second Amendment in this way? 
It came from, so the, the spark for this book was the killing of Philando Castile. Okay. Because you had yeah. this, black, this black man in Minnesota who got pulled over by the cops um, for some traffic violation. When the police officer asked to see his ID, Philando Castile gives him the NRA approved way to say, officer, I'm reaching for my ID, but I want you to know that I have a license to carry weapon with me so that the cop doesn't freak out if he sees a gun while he's reaching for his ID. The moment Philando Castile said that, the police officer began putting bullets into Philando Castile. So you have a black man who is not threatening the cops at all, right. but is gunned down because he has a weapon, because he has a gun. And the NRA went virtually silent. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, what? What? Um, and it got, and so they eventually they gave some kind of milk a toast. We believe everybody has the right to bear arms, yada, yada, yada. But I was like, this is not the same NRA mm -mm. that was going crazy over folk over Ruby Ridge and Waco talking about jackbooted government thugs. Right. This is like we believe everybody. And, I, and so people began asking, well, do black people have Second Amendment rights? I thought black folks had Second Amendment rights. And with all of the books that I had written before, I had never dealt with the Second Amendment. And that's what got me going. And so then I started doing the research. And it was in the research that all of a sudden the question is about, is this about an individual right to bear arms or a right to a well-regulated militia? I was like, that is not the issue. Mm -hmm. The issue here is anti-Blackness, how this courses through from the very beginning. You start seeing these laws on the books in the 1600s before there was a United States of America about black people shall not bear arms. Black people cannot have guns. Black people cannot have weapons. They cannot have ammunition. And it was this fear of a black revolt um, that was at the fear of, of black people, the fear of black violence that was just driving this thing in the 1600s. And it's that fear that courses through till today. Yeah. I mean, Remind me if I don't get to it on my own. I want to talk about Ruby Ridge and Waco when we get when we get there. But I'm going to try to keep us a little bit more focused on your book until, until we get there. Uh, I have an obsession with Waco. Just it's the 30th anniversary of this year. So I've been reading through all the books that are coming out about it. There's like three big ones. So I've just been steeped in that conversation. Anyways, you talked about, you know, before there was ever a constitution, before there was ever an America, there was this fear about black people with guns. And what are we going to do about the black people that we've so graciously brought to this country? And, <laughs> and, and then you say in the book, you know, the variable in the gun conversation is not the guns. It's not about the guns themselves. It's about black people. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yes. Um, so that, and I guess the best way to do it, I'm a historian. So the best way to do it is to tell the stories. Go for it. It's a podcast. Yeah. That's what we do here. <laughs> <laughs> so it is when you think about um, the Black Panthers, right? The Black Panthers were, were, were formed because of massive police violence raining down on the Black community. And none of the political figures would do anything about it. In fact, they were basically silent mm -hmm. on that the violence raining down on the black community from police officers. So the Panthers come into being as a self-defense committee for the black community. And so they were going to police the police. They knew California's gun laws. They knew how they could carry. They knew what they could carry. And they knew how far away from the police they could carry it. And they followed the law to the letter. Mm -hmm. That ticked off the cops. <laughs> <laughs> sure did. Right? Because you have folks carrying guns legally, mm -hmm. and it ticked off the cops. And so they ran to the state legislature that's, and said, we've got to make what they're doing illegal. Mm -hmm. And Don Mulford, with the help of the NRA, wrote the law to basically make the way that the Panthers were carrying the guns to police the police, to keep the police from, from beating up on black folk during an arrest, to make that illegal. So you've got the NRA working with Republicans mm -hmm. 
to strip the guns away from black folk. Now, have we seen that same kind of configuration when white men gun down folk? No. No. I mean, so even, even after Uvalde, even after Buffalo, right. even after Aurora, Kentucky, even after Dylan Roof, even after, even after, right. even after, you get this, 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 <laughs> guns are sacred. And what's really going on here? And I'm going to move to a, a book called Dying of Whiteness. Yes. Jonathan Metzl, right? Where one of the things that he does is he looks at, um, he goes into rural Missouri and he's in a, a support group for whites who have had gun violence in their family. Mm. And the question of gun safety legislation comes up and they are adamant. Absolutely not. You will not take my guns because those people from St. Louis will right. come down here and try to take everything that we have. Hmm. Wow. Or you think about how the McCluskeys in St. Louis, the oh, white yes. pulled the guns out. Yes. Right. I forgot about <laughs> those people. Lives matter. Right. Uh, peaceful protesters, how the McCluskeys get embraced. Right and are actually at the Republican National Convention. Right. So it, it is the, the imbalance in, in the 1840s, I believe it is. So I'm going way back because, you know, this yeah. stuff has history. In the 1840s, actually, Georgia had passed a law that dealt with the constriction of guns for everybody because white folk were killing each other left and right. Right. <laughs> George was like, yo, gee, stop. Um, <laughs> and, and the courts came back and said, that law is illegal mm. because it violates white folks' Second Amendment rights. However, the law that you have banning black folk, the enslaved and free blacks as well, is still in place, even with this decision. Mm. So white folks can have their guns. Black folks, free and enslaved, cannot. Yeah. Yeah. When you, so I don't, I, I vaguely remember hearing this somewhere. I can't remember the, the gentleman's name. He wrote another book about gun rights, Igor something. Yes. Yes. Um, I feel like I heard him say once that the NRA joining forces with the Republican party to make laws against the freedom of owning guns when it came to the Black Panthers was the first time that they'd ever got into politics, right? Like that they had sort of been this like hunting group. And then all of a sudden they became a lobbying group in the response to the Black Panthers. Is that, am I remembering that right? Yes, you are. Okay. Um, they, they, they had uh, a tepid response to a law in the 1930s that was dealing with machine guns because you had the gangsters. Okay. Yeah, so they were really tepid there, but you know, ah, yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> but but it really was basically with the rise of the civil rights movement. Got it. Where you start seeing this this transformation from a sporting club to a lobby group, a lobbying group, right? That for guns, right? I want to. So just for we've been talking about the Second Amendment, but for people who aren't totally familiar with the language of it. I'm just going to read the Second Amendment itself to you all really quickly. It's very short. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The writing is insane. It's totally nonsensical. There's commas all over the place. But <laughs> I just wanted to put that out there because this is my second time reading this book. And something that stuck out to me, the, my first read, what really stuck out to me was a lot of like the Black Panthers story, a lot of like the, the more recent stuff that I had a better relationship to. And now this second time, I was really struck by a lot of the history, especially how the Second Amendment came to be and how, you know, as we know with the history of America, there was so much negotiation around the worth, value, and impact of Black bodies in the country and what like political maneuvering was going to happen and who was, you know, there's this whole faction of like, we don't want a Bill of Rights, the Constitution is the thing. 
If you've seen Hamilton, you know, they talk about that a lot, um, if you're familiar. But but I I found this idea of the militia to be so important to the Second Amendment in a way that I do not think about it being important now. Like the idea of a militia to me is like, that's an old timey thing or whatever. But in reading this book the second time, all I could think about was militia. And so I'm, I'm wondering sort of like from what you've laid out, what is the historical impact of moving away from militia as like, cause we don't talk about militia super. I mean, a little bit now they're kind of, they're back in trend a little, but mm. like, I think when we think about the second amendment so much, it's like this person's right to have a gun. Like was old boy in Wisconsin, was he legally allowed to shoot those people with his gun, which he wasn't supposed to have that gun, but you know, it, it becomes that conversation. And it's not about this bigger thing of like a militia bringing security to a free state. And, and, and so I'm going to start back with the militia okay, and then move us through. Do it. So this so, is awesome. It's like a private history class. I'm in heaven right now. <laughs> So part of what you saw happening in the 1600s um, with slavery is that you had the slave patrols. And those were the smaller groups that were managing, governing the movement of the enslaved people, um, going through their cabins, making sure there was no contraband there that could, um, like books, um, like weapons, anything that could bring about the revolution. Seems like those like, are the two things we are still talking about now, right? Books and boom. weapons. <laughs> right. So little changes. Um, and 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 then there was the militia. And the militia had multiple roles. One of the roles was to to stop a foreign invasion or to or to help with basically fighting off the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. But another key role of the militia was to put down slave revolts mm -hmm. uh, because they were bigger than the, the smaller slave patrols. And so this militia was absolutely instrumental for controlling enslaved people, mm -hmm. for hunting them down when they tried to flee to free land, for terrorizing them because they had the audacity to believe they had the right to be free. Right. That they weren't property, but they were actually human beings. And so the role of the militia was about controlling Black people, but also in terms of protecting the white community. And so that became one of the key debates happening with the ratification of the Constitution. Because James Madison, who was a drafter of the Constitution, had put control of the militia under the federal government. Mm. And he did that because the militia had been really erratic during the War of Independence. Sometimes they show up, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they fight a little bit, and then sometimes they're like, you know, peace out, I'm done. Yeah. You know, and then they would take off running. So, it, and George Washington was like, dang, how am I supposed to fight a war with folks who won't show up? Right. So the whole point of putting it under federal control was to begin to standardize their training and all of that. Well, the slaveholders like Patrick Henry and George Mason in, in Virginia, when they were doing the, the, the ratification of the Constitution, they brought that up. They were like, wait a minute, let me see if I get this right. You put the militia under the control of the federal government, and that federal government has folks like from Pennsylvania and from Massachusetts who are like getting rid of slavery? Oh, no, 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 no. We will be left defenseless when our enslaved folk rise up. Right. They won't send in the militia to protect us. Right. We have got to have protection. And if we don't get protection, we will scuttle this thing called the Constitution and we will scuttle your United States of America. Right. You know, and James Madison is just like, dang, because yeah. he has worked so hard. Right, right, right. right thing together. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. And so what they basically agreed to is he agrees to work on a bill of rights. And Patrick Henry and George Mason have made it clear, if they don't get the protection that they demand, they will hold another constitutional convention. And Madison is scared out of his bejeebers. Mm -hmm. And that's the scholarly term. Okay. Scared <laughs> out of his bejeebers. <laughs> 
<laughs> that another constitutional convention will lead to going back to the unworkable articles of confederation. Right. And, and so he's going to do everything he can to satisfy the anti-federalist of, of Patrick Henry and, and, and George Mason. And that includes this Bill of Rights. And so when you think about the Bill of Rights, you've got the right to free press, the right to freedom of speech, the right to, to not have a religion controlled by the state, right. um, the, the right to, to not be illegally searched and seized, the right to have a, free, a speedy and fair trial, the right not to have cruel and unusual punishment, the right to a well-regulated militia. <laughs> yeah. You see how that thing just sticks out? It does. It does. And it sticks out because that is the bribe to the South, right. that they will control the militia. They will be able to control Black people and protect the white community from these Black people. Right. And that thing carries through. And so you're asking about the change. The change happens, I think, with the increased professionalization of the police mm -hmm. and the way that that becomes the containment component for black folk. I see. And with the NRA really hyping in on the individual right to bear arms. And so you'll see that with the language of crime, crime, crime. So you think about Richard Nixon's law and order. Yes. Um, and, you know, and the campaign that shows cities in flames and and I'm the party of law and order. I'm the man of law and order. And the boy was a crook. Yeah. But yeah. I'm law and order, <laughs> law and order. Right. With all of that in that sense that black folk gone wild, that they had lost the containment of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And so now when they're out there without having that kind of white um, structure around them that told them what their place was. They had lost their ever-loving minds. They were rioting. They crime everywhere. And with that, you started getting this sense of, I have to have my gun. And so you see the, the NRA really pushing hard on this individual right to bear arms. And so even in their headquarters, mm. that top part about the militia is no longer there as part of the Second Amendment. Yeah. Instead, what they have in the entry to their at their headquarters is that second part about the individual right to bear arms shall not be abridged. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I have two I have one very small question, and I don't know if you have the answer, but I'm sure you have a thought about it. In the Bill of Rights, are we to believe that the amendments are written in order of importance or no? No. I've always no. wondered. No. And it's there were just a jumble uh what there were over a hundred amendments that, that Madison was dealing with that were coming in from the states. And he started working and revising and working and revising. And then he he had like 17 of them. Then he had 12. And then the Senate looked at them and reworked them and, and put them. And so, no, they're not in any kind of specific order in terms of importance. Okay. It's just the way that it rolled. So it's okay. not like the Second Amendment is like. Well, you hear that sometimes people are like, you know, the first two amendments, the right to free speech and the right to bear arms. Like you hear people kind of, you know, talk about those two as like. And sometimes you hear people who are, you know, anti-gun say the Second Amendment is overtaking the First Amendment or something, you know, like sometimes you hear people use that kind of language. So I wasn't sure if there was any historical precedent for that idea. And, and the Third Amendment is the one about not quartering yeah. troops in private homes, <laughs> Which right? Which is like totally not a thing for us at all. I always, even as a kid, I remember being like, this is three? Like, this is three? Okay. <laughs> All right. right. Go right. off Third right. Amendment. You really you did, you did some great stuff there. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. 
The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. So in the end of your book, in the new in the new book, you have a new conclusion, which I loved. Um, and you talk about the Second Amendment is about white people's right to wield violence in support of a racially exclusionary worldview. Here's my question. Is the Second Amendment an end or is it always just a means? The Second Amendment is a means to an end. What's the end? The end is white dominance and black subjugation. The end is making sure that black people understand their place, that they do not have the right to Mm self-defense, that they do not have the right to bear arms, Mm -hmm. and that they are to be subservient and submissive to whatever the dominant white power structure says, because that was slavery. Right. Um, and that's the roots of this thing. Right. And it and allowed whites to have inordinate power mm. over black people um, to the point of being able to kill them without consequence. And so this is why I take us through from the 1600s to the point where, where the, the legal status of African-Americans keeps changing. Right. right? So flow from property to denizen, that, that in, in right, between, in between. Space, Mm-hmm. to after the Civil War when they're freed people mm-hmm. and they've got the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment and they're still getting slaughtered and right. there are no consequences. Right. You know, so when President Ulysses S. Grant, after the Colfax Massacre and the Hamburg Massacre, says, you know, what these states have in common is not Christianity. It is not civilization. It is the right to kill Negroes. Hmm. It's like, dang. Yeah, he just said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> he did. He did. It's like, whoa. And he's like, and without consequence. Without consequence. Without right. consequence, right? And then, so we go from freed people to Jim Crow African Americans. When they're trying to defend and protect themselves in Atlanta, they're slaughtered. Right. Um, in, in, and then I look at Houston, Elaine, Arkansas, Brownsville, Texas slaughter, slaughter, slaughter Hmm. without consequence. Right. Because black folks didn't know their place. Right. Yeah. So in Atlanta, the, the ostensibly it was because black men were lusting after white women. Sure. Of course. Always, (laughs) always. But what it really had to deal with 
was you had a, a prominent black business community and you had the move to try to disfranchise black folk because black folks were trying to exercise their citizenship rights, their right to vote. How do we stop that? We slaughter them. We put them in their place. And, and so that's what we're seeing in terms of this, this ability of whites to enact enormous violence yeah, with, without consequence. It's, it's so funny because the, the, the thing that keeps coming up throughout the book, it's in every chapter, is Black people can't have guns because then they're going to rise up and start a race war. Which it, I mean, it's like every, it's like every other page. There's some quote from some white guy being like, "They can't have guns; they're going to kill us." And it's just such a like to me, it's just such a crazy thing to say from the people who stole black people and created race and created wars about race and have been killing and hurting black bodies for centuries. Like it's like there, it's like when my kid, when I tell my kid, "Don't hit me," and he's like, "You don't hit me." I'm like, "Wait, but I'm not hitting you. You're 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 three, and you're literally hitting me right now. And why are you yelling this? Like, no, like I know you are, but what am I? And that's what it feels like. It's like, okay, but we've we've never actually done that. Like you guys have been doing that and we've never actually had a, we've never started. Like, it's just, it feels so, it's so, it's like gaslighting, right? It's like infuriating gaslighting. But one of the things you mentioned, I, I think in that, in that finale or the conclusion is that the relationship to gun ownership and slave ownership now are tied together so that the States that had the most slaves per capita or whatever, now have the most guns per capita. I, and and that's, that, that was my thing. It's like when you do the research, when you, when you look, when you ask the question, mm-hmm. it's sitting there. It is it's sitting right there. There, <laughs> right? You know, and so I, I think about how, um, okay, so this fear of Black folk. Mm-hmm. So it's like when you, when a Black person is, pulled over because of a broken taillight. Sure. And they end up being killed. Yeah. By the cops. And the cops say, but I was afraid. Mm -hmm. But when Dylan Roof slaughters nine black folk, Mm -hmm. he's taken alive. Mm -hmm. When Peyton Gendron in Buffalo, basically following the great replacement theory, hunts down black people, actually goes hunting for them and slaughters them, he's taken alive. You don't hear the cops saying, I was afraid for my life. Right. But they do that with Tamir Rice, who's 12 years old, playing with a toy gun in the park in an open carry state. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it's like you keep looking and you keep seeing it. It doesn't stop. And it doesn't stop because this society has not dealt with anti-Blackness. Right. And so the discussions that we have about guns, 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 we can't get where we need to go because we're not dealing with the anti-Blackness that's at the core of the Second Amendment, that's at the core of this society. So we've made a deal to be a Mm trade-off that we're willing to be unsafe in our schools, unsafe in our restaurants, unsafe in our recreational facilities, unsafe in movie theaters, unsafe at universities, right? unsafe in our churches, right. unsafe in our synagogues, our grocery stores, grocery stores. As long as we can make sure, as Jonathan Metzl laid out, that those people from St. Louis mm-hmm. don't come and take everything that we have. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic yeah. book called Children Under Fire about um, children and gun violence. And and to me, like, that's the argument that I'm just like, look, if you want to be an adult and you want to risk getting killed, that's on you. But like these babies, you know, it's just it's just so and and hearing what you're saying, I wonder if you know of any organizations that are, you know, gun control or, or gun, you know, reframing guns and and doing that through a lens of anti blackness like who are doing activism in that way no not that i know of Uh, and 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 let's let's be honest in in the u.s talking about race talking about black folk yeah (laughs) 
yeah, not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. And it becomes the thing that people call a distraction. Yes, of course. And it's not a distraction. It's the core. It's the thing. It's the thing. Yeah. Okay, so then let me ask you this, because one of the things that I love about your work is how you lay out these arguments, right? Like, and I think people listening here can hear that you're, you, you know, it, it's coming off the top of your head. Like you don't have notes, you don't have anything in front of you, you know, this stuff in, in the core of your being. And I think a lot about audience, obviously, as a, as a reader and who are you writing for and who are you writing to? And I'm curious about how you are thinking about your audience and how you're thinking about persuasion versus education, or maybe something else like cementing ideas, like into the culture cultural consciousness, like, because I know that persuasion is really hard. And you just mentioned, like, anytime you bring up black folks, it's like, oh, wall goes up, we can't do it. So who are you thinking that your audience is? And like, why are you putting these books into the world? I love that question. (laughs) Good. (laughs) My first two books were academic books. Right. Um, Eyes Off the Prize and Bourgeois Radicals. Okay. And then I was in this thing called the op-ed project, which taught faculty members how to write for a public audience. I already have a very um, accessible writing style. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But how to craft that into into these op-ed pieces. And so I was at my computer. We had a workshop later that day. I was at my computer and I have my TV on um, in my office, and Ferguson was on fire. Okay. And all of the pundits were talking about it. It didn't matter what station I had on, because, you know, with the remote, you yeah. can flip flipping through. <laughs> and um, they were all talking about all this black rage. Look at black folks burning up where they live. Ooh, can you believe bl- who burns up where they live? I mean, what right. good is it going to do to burn up where you live? Why are they burning up where they live? Look at that black rage. And I'm shaking my head mm-hmm. like, like, you know, I'm, I'm all Amy Winehouse. No, no, no. <laughs> that, this is white rage. Right. And I went, ooh. And I just started writing. Hmm. And out came the op-ed that ended up in the Washington Post on white rage. Mm-hmm. And from there came the book. And so my audience is a broader public beyond the academy. Mm -hmm. Folks who are hungry to figure this thing out. Mm -hmm. And the way that I do history is I grew up in the church, Mm -hmm. but I cannot quote a Bible verse to you. You know, I don't know what Matthew third chapter 49 (laughs) verses. I have no doggone idea. Right. I don't even know if there's a 49th verse. I don't either. Uh, Right. But what I remember are the stories. Right. Because it's the stories that stick with you. Mm -hmm. It's the stories where you get what are the issues here? Why did this thing unfold the way that it it unfolded? What were the options available to folks? And why did they choose to go down this route and not that route? Right. So that's how I do history. I do history for an audience that is hungry for knowledge, that wants to figure things out. that knows that we could be better, we could do better mm-hmm. for those who want a great, powerful story that leaves them hungry, fit, fulfilled in one way, but hungry for more knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's who I write for. Can I ask you this follow up? Because mm-hmm. I and I, I don't mean this to be totally disrespectful to all the people I'm about to shit on right now, but <laughs> a lot of people and it's not their fault. We have not a great history situation in America as far as education goes. And so when you're writing for people who are curious and interested, you know, like they're they're rooting for you. They're not like out to get you, but they don't have any of the information or like they've been taught history wrong or they thought that there were benevolent slave owners and like these kinds of things. How is that difficult for you? Is that frustrating? Like, what does that feel like for someone who's dedicated their life to history to then be writing for a broader audience and realize that like outside of academia, I mean, probably inside academia too, but especially outside that there's a lot of people who just have these like huge gaps or like misunderstandings or wrong ideas. Like, how do you deal with that? And I'm sure it comes up at like question Q and A's at book events and stuff. Cause those are yeah. scary. <laughs> And the way that I deal with that, if you'll notice, my books have a lot of pages dedicated 
to the sources. I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's the way that I deal with it. Because one of the things is that it's easy, and I'm putting that in quotes, to write on race in the United States without documenting it. Mm. For those who are hungry, for those who who question, for those who who have been taught that slavery was benevolent, for those who have been taught that you know, the Civil War was not about slavery. For those who have been taught that it was all, everything was all over but the shouting after the Civil Rights Movement. We took the signs down. Now this is an equal rights society. Mm -hmm. Woo! Equal opportunity society. Right. Yo, having that documentation where when I say something, it's not just me saying it. They, they can look and they can go to those sources and they can read the sources. Mm. That is what is so key for me huh. is that it allows folks to go deeper in, in, when, in doing the research by seeing the steps that I followed right. and then coming off of those steps. In writing the second, what came easily and what was the hardest part? This was the hardest book I've had to write. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, it was hard for multiple reasons. One, was the depth of the violence was unrelenting sure. against black people. Yeah. The trauma, Lord, just, and, and so that's why the dedication is to my elderly aunts and uncle, uh, because they have lived through this mess. Mm -hmm. And I quote them, Mahalia Jackson, my soul looks back and wonders, mm -hmm. you know, how mm -hmm. I got over because they had to come through this. Right. Um, that was hard. And, and, and what was hard was dealing with that trauma and then having to pull back analytically mm -hmm. to say what this means. What does right. this violence mean? Right. Um, why did this violence happen in this way? Right. Yeah. What was driving this violence? What were the consequences of this violence in a nation of laws? Yeah. Uh, um, and watching that the law meant in. Eh, you don't get that protection. Right. You know, and so it's like Elaine, Arkansas. Whew. So here you have black folks working from Kent to Kent as sharecroppers and having their wages stolen from them. Right. You know, imagine working an entire year and then you go to get paid and they're like, oops, bees yeah. that way sometimes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so they, began to organize a labor union and the, the reaction for them organizing a labor union so that they can get paid for their labor right. was to hunt them down and slaughter them. And when they fought back, then to bring in the U S army with machine guns used in the war in the first world war and to begin mowing them down. So something like 800 African-Americans were killed mm -hmm. in Elaine, Arkansas, but the black folks who shot back are then charged with murder. Right. I mean, you look at that and, and it's just like, wasn't this war to make the world safe for democracy? What about America being safe for democracy? Right. Yeah. So it, it and so that was what was so hard about this book. Also, frankly, what was hard about this book is I'm a trained 20th century historian. Okay. Um, but like I said, the Philando Castile killing mm -hmm. just went, mm. and so I knew I had to go back. And so I am reading deeply and broadly in colonial history and then in antebellum history, in the Republic history, early Republic history, and antebellum history. And I was like, whoo. And so this is where having wonderful colleagues having a community of scholars around you. So I'm like, okay, sharing chapters with them, asking about sources, asking about what they call historiographical interpretations. So like the Stono Rebellion, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was one article that I read that said that it wasn't planned. It was just spontaneous. Mm -hmm. That didn't seem right Doesn't to me. Right. No, it didn't sound right at all. Um, and so I asked my colleague because I've been reading other stuff, and they're like, "Oh yeah, they plan, they plan, they plan." Asked my colleague, and he he had written on Stono, and he said, "Oh, they planned, mm. <laughs> they planned." And I went, "Okay, okay." So it was doing being able to do that kind of vetting, historical right. vetting, um, making sure that I was sound and solid on this. And so when I was dealing with Haiti, 
um, and the fear of the Haitian Revolution sure. by the founding fathers. Um, I turned to my colleague who writes on Haiti. And she went, oh, this is good. <laughs> this is good. And I was like, yes, yes. Okay. I love yeah. that. Um, how long did it take you to write this? Did you actually start in, two, was that 2016 with Clando Castillo or was that 2017? Yeah, I start, I actually, um, I wanted to start in 2017, but the election of 2016 happened mm-hmm. and seeing the pundits just get it wrong. Yeah, you were like, so okay, it, let me go do this. Yeah, let me go do this, right? So, uh, so that's how one person, no vote came into right. being. Um, because because they just got it so wrong about, you know, well, Black folks just didn't show up because they just weren't feeling Hillary. Right. So you wrote that book very quickly. Yes. Because that came out in 2018, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Quick turnaround. How, and what about this one? This one took longer. This one took a bit longer. I started writing it in 2019 and it came out in 2021. Oh, so not too much longer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. I have... I want to go back to that Waco thing from the beginning. I didn't forget. So I had a question written down for you about what is the actual difference between a militia and a gang? Is there one? That's a great question. I got ready to say that a militia has structures, but gangs have structures. Gangs have structures. And the way that militias have operated in the U.S., they usually have some kind of, well, they, used to have some kind of official sanction. Okay. You know, you know, so governmental sanctions. So there was the state militia. Now militias are more of the kind of right wing um element for domestic white domestic terrorism. Right. Yeah. But there's no real difference except for that they've been given a different name to make them somehow feel more legit, it feels like. Right. Like it feels like that. At yeah. least nowadays, like maybe in, you know, 1725, it was different. But I feel like now I'm like, OK, you guys are just white and like Trump. Like, but you're doing the same shit. Like you have <laughs> guns, you have meetings, you do stuff. Arguably, you're less you give back less to your communities than some gangs. But I mean, I'm even thinking of like cop gangs, like they're essentially a militia in a lot of ways too, right? Like this like unsanctioned or like this government adjacent community of people with guns who are terrorizing others. But, but my question, I guess about Waco, I've been reading a lot about it. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that Waco was not the people, the Branch Davidians, they were not all white. There were, It was actually some racial diversity there, which nobody talks about because the legacy of Waco is a lot of white supremacists. And they they use what happened there as a way to be like white power and the government and hands off our guns and don't tread on me and, you know, we hate you. And I'm wondering if you know of any groups or people, Black people or people of color who have also embraced Waco. Because from what I've read, a lot of the lessons of Waco are similar to a lot of the things I think about, about like abolish police and like that the government is like too aggressive and horrible to citizens. And like, it's a different messenger. But I was just wondering if you've ever heard of of that side of it. No, I haven't. Okay. I haven't. I've, I've, I've heard the anti-government component of it. I've heard the freedom of religion component mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard the the feds came in hard, hot and heavy. They sure did. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and just blew those folks away mm-hmm. um, component of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard the weird cultish component yeah. of it with yeah. Koresh. Um, but no, I haven't heard of any um, black group that has embraced it. Embraced it. Yeah, I'm so irritated. Doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It's yeah. just I haven't heard it. I haven't either. I'm very curious about it. It's going to become my new life's work is figuring this out. <laughs> but anyways, um, I wanted to ask you about your process a little bit. So clearly, you write these deeply historical books very quickly, which is so impressive. How do you write? How many hours a day? How often is there music? Are you at home? Are you out of the home? Are there snacks and beverages? Do you like candles? Like set the scene for us. Um, The scene is when I research, I then put the the components, the, the key phrases, quotes and everything 
on note cards. Mm -hmm. um, and then I print out the note cards. This is old school. Print out the note cards, organize them by topic mm -hmm. on my desk. Mm -hmm. um, and then I start writing. So I, I'll have the music on or I'll have the TV on and I'm writing. And I usually write for 10 to 12 hours a day. Wow. When I've got that kind of block of time. Mm -hmm. If not, because I also wrote White Rage, One Person No Vote, and the second while chairing the Department of African American Studies. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> that's a so, whole other interview. So, whoa. And so um, I would do then uh, how I wrote my dissertation because I worked full time while working on my PhD oh, is okay. that when I got home and got the kids down, then I would, would, would write wow. or then I would research. So I would do what I call wedge writing because I, I believe that you've touched your project every day. Mm -hmm. It stays fresh. So there were days when I knew I didn't have 10 hours or when I didn't even have five hours or, but I, I was like, but you got 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> and so I would do something on the book, whether it was just massaging a sentence or, or hunting up an article, but it was touching the project every day wow. was, was the goal. And what about snacks or beverages? Um, lots of iced tea. Oh, oh Lots always, always available. Is that home brewed or is there a brand that you drink? Um, Lipton cold brew. Okay. I love this. Yeah. And I always ask this question, but I especially like to ask it to smarty pants like you. What is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Probably occurring. Oh, sure. The O, is it the O that gets you? No, it's, it's the, the double R's. R. Yeah. The double R. But I remember, you know, so, so I read somewhere that somebody's like, everybody remembers the word that kicked him out of the spelling bee. Mm. Is that, is that your word? word? Was, my word was roommate. Oh, is there two <laughs> um, M's? Two M's. Okay. <laughs> two M's. Yeah. So I realized that my, 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 my weakness. Double consonants. Was, mm -hmm, That's where mm -hmm. I struggle. Consonants get me too. It's funny. People do say that about the spelling bee. I don't. Either I got kicked out so early because I'm a terrible speller or we didn't have one because I don't remember it and I love to hold a grudge so I would remember. So I either got like kicked out on a room like or like a word like dog or something or else like it didn't happen because I don't have that memory at all. But I'm such a terrible speller that, you know, who knows? Um, you probably spelled dog D-A-W-G. Yeah. Yes, this a different spelling, but accepted in some communities, mine personally. Um I have to ask you, who is the coolest person who mentioned or expressed interest in the second? I want to say Igor Ravolsky. Oh, this that's the yeah. God guy. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, and it was just such a wonderful conversation because he was like, wow, you know, we have been on this for a while and and haven't looked at it from this perspective. This hmm. is this is gonna cause us to rethink. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, cool. I love um that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think he's cool. he's a cool. I think he seems like a very cool guy. Like he's yeah. like if you had a cause, he's the kind of guy you would want on your side. Yes. Totally, yes. totally. Yes. Um for people who love the second, what are some other books you would recommend to them? Obviously, if you love the second, you have to look at all the sources in the back cuz there's tons, but if there was a handful that you could pick that you were like these are great ones to continue or to think about this stuff in a different way or whatever. Um I think Michael Waldman's um, the Second Amendment, mm -hmm. really good. Igor Volsky's Guns Down. Yeah. Um, loaded by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Okay. Yeah, because she's looking at the the ban on guns for indigenous people. Mm. Um, and so when you begin to see how racialized mm -hmm. these gun bans are, how racialized gun ownership is, mm -hmm. it, it helps us think through the United States of America. It helps us think through what this real history is. Yeah. Um, and so we can have deeper, better conversations. Yeah. I, it's funny you should mention those two books because, or two, the, two of those books, because when I think in 2018 or maybe 2019, I went to the LA Times Book Festival because I'm based in LA and I saw Igor mm -hmm. Volsky and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz and maybe two other people that I don't remember talking about guns because I guess maybe that's when those books both came out. But you mentioning that, I'm like, oh, right. I do remember that. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. My last two questions. One is, what do you hope folks will keep in mind as they read your book? 
the power of anti-blackness in shaping American history. Yeah. In shaping those icons that we think of, um, like the founding fathers, mm -hmm. like the constitution, mm -hmm. like the civil war, mm -hmm. like Supreme Court decisions. Yeah. Like policing. Um, the power of anti-blackness in American society has shaped so much of the contours of, of the, the political, the legal, and the social realms in which we live, um, that if we understand the power of anti-blackness, we're having a very different kind of conversation. And this, I've got to say, this is one of the reasons I believe that you have this massive backlash against the teaching of real American history, yeah. against the teaching of African-American studies, yeah. because it causes you to think critically about the things that you thought you knew, and then you're asking questions. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want folks to stay in their place, you don't want them asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's so right. Because I, I mean, I can even for myself, like reading your work, there's a lot of people who's uh, reading Harriet Washington's work, who's who reframed so much of what I thought that I understood by shaping it through a lens of of the black experience and anti-blackness and, and all of that. It's just it changes fundamentally. I mean, I'll never forget reading. I think it was Harriet Washington where she talks about blood pressure and how black people aren't actually genetically predisposed to higher blood pressure. And it was this moment for me of like, wait, if that's true, what are we talking about? What is this? And it was like, oh my, it's racism. Like it was like this moment of like, holy shit, racism is changing our blood pressure because black people in Africa don't have high blood pressure necessarily. <laughs> Right. And so and, and so it is. And so when you think about when you get in your car and you see a cop, a cop. Yeah. You that immediately tense. tense yep. Right. You immediately yep. tense. You think about going into a store and you're like, OK, am I going to get followed mm -hmm. or am I going to get waited on? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so you're you're having to go through all of these calculations about things that you shouldn't have to calculate. Right. It's when you're when you're applying for a job, mm -hmm. you ask yourself, self, do I identify myself by my my race? Because if I do, there's a good doggone well chance that I'm not going to get this job. That's right. And, and, you know, and we have the data to prove this, yeah. all of this. And so then all of the claims about black folks getting affirmative action. So they're getting jobs that they're not qualified right. for. Okay. That, that again is projection. Right. It's not real. Uh, it's not real. <laughs> um, yeah. Cause one of the things that I, I laid out in, in white rage was that the greatest beneficiary of affirmative action in college admissions are males. Wow. Of course. Of course they are. Somehow it <laughs> somehow it works out for them in the end always. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. Wow. Okay, here's my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive read the second, who would you want it to be? <laughs> my parents. Mm. Cuz they're both dead. Mm -hmm. And they had to come through some, some the hell of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And I would love for them to see their story mm -hmm. framed in a way that would make sense yeah. and that their baby girl did that work. Yeah, I love that so much. I, I thought a lot about my father in reading this book, who's also passed, who was an older generation. He was born in the 30s in the South. And and I thought so much about him and his family as I as I read this book and as I read all of your work, really. Um, so thank you for that. Um, all right. We're, we've come to the end of this interview. Everyone at home, you must read the second by Carol Anderson. It is so, so, so good. It is reframing how we're talking about guns and anti-blackness. And it's, as you heard, very accessible. <laughs> like it's just so easy to understand and to read and to follow. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. <laughs> thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. 
All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Dr. Carol Anderson for being our guest. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to Amanda Dissinger for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, our March book club pick is Bad Feminist by Roxanne Gay. We will be discussing the book on March 29th with our guest, Shanita Hubbard. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 